Good morning. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day, this uh, day that you've been, that you've made. And God, we want to rejoice and be glad in it because you are a good, loving, and sovereign God. God, we thank you that you love us, that you see us, that you care for us, that your ear is inclined to us, and that we are we are the sheep of your pasture. Uh, we are sons and daughters uh, of your family. And God, I pray that you would uh, help me bring clarity uh, to this passage today. I pray that you'd be honored and glorified. I pray that we would be edified. You would encourage us, that you would evict us, that you would transform us from one degree of glory to another, that you would um, enliven our hearts to the realities of who you are and what it is that you've called us to. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first. And God's people said, amen. Well, we are, as uh, Ryan said, we are <clears throat> on the uh, home stretch of 2 Corinthians, the uh, sermon series called Compelled. And um, we've got three more weeks after this, um, and um, today is uh, chapter 10, as Rachel just read, and um, the title that I gave it, I'm not sure it even fits where the Lord has brought me on this, uh, so that doesn't really matter. Um, you know, I was, at a, uh, I was at a conference this week, um, and um, conferences always are weird. Um, they're great, but they're weird, and um, as I find myself getting caught up in comparison, in comparing um, this church to other churches, comparing myself to other um, leaders and pastors. And it's just, it's just easy to like go like, man, like, I'm sure glad we're not like that. Or I wish we were more like this. Or um, when somebody, you know, asks you the question, you know, like, you know, how many people are in your youth group or what's your average attendance or what's your budget or that type of thing. It's just... Um, just brings out weirdness, um, actually, and um, and it's not healthy. And and a, a principle that I want to bring forth out of this passage today is that comparison leads to healthy, unhealthy churches. Um, comparison isn't good at any level, whether it be comparing ourselves to um, to each other. Um, but we certainly shouldn't compare this church to other churches. And I'm going to get to a little bit of application before we start off in just a few minutes. But first, I want to give you a high-level review, very high level. The last. Um, two of the last three weeks, we've taught through chapter 8 and chapter 9 of Corinthians, where Paul um, exhorted us, he encouraged the church to give, to give sacrificially and to give um, cheerfully as an overflow of God's grace in our life. He, he encouraged us to excel in the grace of giving. He taught the principles of sacrificial and cheerful giving in proportion to what we have, not to what we don't have. And Paul uh, asked the church in Corinth, Paul was writing them from Ephesus, um, he had been gone from Corinth for a while, and he was writing them from Ephesus, and he encouraged them to set aside an offering that they had apparently promised about a year earlier, to set aside an offering for the poor Christians in Jerusalem, and he would be coming to pick up that offering and then to deliver it to the church in Jerusalem. And now in this final section of his letter, really all the way through the end of this letter, the next four sermons, including today, um, uh, Paul will address the unrepentant minority. There is a, there's a minority in the church in Corinth, in this region of Achaia, who have yet to repent. That are, that are, um, they have fallen for the lies and deceptions um, that the, of the enemy, of Satan, that he is putting forth through 
uh, these men that, are, that Paul calls um, super apostles or false apostles. Um, these false apostles have slipped into the church uh, while Paul has moved out of the church, and they're somehow contradicting the gospel message that Paul preached to them, and they are undermining Paul's apostolic credentials. What they're telling the church is that Paul is weak and that he can't speak, and therefore, how could he be God's representative? How could he have God's authority if he is weak and doesn't speak well? So in these final chapters, as Paul prepares the Corinthians for his arrival, Paul is going to defend his reputation against the allegations of these boastful, false teachers. But I want you to understand that his primary motive is, uh, and his primary goal is not to save his reputation. Um, he's much like Jesus. Jesus uh, uh, Peter said about Jesus, when Jesus was reviled, he what? He did not revile in return. And so Paul's primary goal isn't to save his reputation, but to save the church, to save the church from these foolish false um, apostles who are preaching a false gospel and have brought it into the church that Paul um, loves so much. So before we get into the text, I want to make a couple of observations regarding Paul's calling that I think will be helpful to the context. And, and it's, the first one is really earth-shattering, uh, for those of you who know the, the Bible well. So are you ready for this? Um, Paul is a missionary. Um, this is important. Um, Paul is a missionary. His calling is to go from town to town, um, city to city, and to establish the church, to evangelize. Um, that's his, um, that's his, his calling. And, um, and he founded the church in Corinth on a second missionary journey um, where he brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people for the very first time. They did not know the name Jesus before Paul arrived. This was his calling, and that's what he did. He would land in a city, he would build relationships, and he would share the gospel. Um, and the gospel, just to be clear, the gospel is, um, is news. It's good news that when we were lost and dead in our sins and trespasses, and we deserved nothing but hell, Jesus in his mercy died for our sins. And the call is to repent and believe. Repent and believe. That's the response to the gospel. And that's pretty much what he did. However, his ultimate and final goal Paul's ultimate goal as a missionary, going from town to town, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, his goal was not converts. His goal was to plant and establish healthy churches. As I, as I was at this uh, missions conference this week, and I had the, we had the privilege, Nancy and I went with um, David and Nicole Morgan and Ken and Kelly Atkinson, and just really fun to sit under just like drinking from a fire hose from just great communicators. And one of the sessions in the book um, that was going to be taught by Mark Dever at, towards the end was healthy churches, not disciples, is the goal. The goal is healthy churches, not disciples. And I, and I couldn't wait to listen to it because I really wanted to pick it apart. I just like, that's like that doesn't make any sense to me at all. But as I sat there, Really throughout the entire conference, that was a deep dive into the book of Acts primarily, also into 2 Corinthians by God's grace. As I sat there, I was struck with the fact that it is true that the goal should be healthy churches, not simply disciple-making. And I don't have time to go into all the, a, a deep biblical exposition on this, but I'm hoping that today's text will actually illustrate this priority. The Father's ultimate goal in giving Jesus Christ was to gather a people to himself. 
Yes, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Yes, Jesus willing to set his face toward Jerusalem to lay down his life so that we can be forgiven. But the whole goal is for forgiveness is so we can be brought back in. That God is a holy God and he is a just God. And he created us to be in relationship with him. So the Father's ultimate goal in giving Jesus to lay down his life is to gather a people for himself, a people who have been captured by the love of Christ and are now compelled to live out the first and second great commandments in community together. Together. To, to, not, just, um, to not just pray a prayer, not just to um, say, uh, but to have praise on our lips, but what a true convert does is they live out the first and second great commandments. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it to what? To love our neighbor as ourself. Paul's work as an evangelist was not finished until a church was established and there was a trajectory toward gospel health in that church. And the Bible tells us a lot about healthy churches. And some aspects of a healthy church include some of the following. Biblical preaching, first and foremost. A healthy church um, goes through large sections of the Scripture, books of the Bible, paragraph by paragraph. Biblical preaching. Another aspect of a healthy church is believers living out the one another's in Scripture, serving one another, bearing one another's burdens, teaching and admonishing one another, serving the community that we live in, building relationships and serving the lost. The list goes on and on. But what healthy churches all have in common is people gathering together, living lives together as a family of families, living in obedience to first and second commandment. And they stay together. Healthy churches have members that stay together, that are committed to one another, that don't jet just when there is um, conflict in the church, or they don't like the way that the uh, mask or the pandemic uh, thing is being handled. The church is a word-centered, spirit-empowered family of families. Word-centered, spirit-empowered family of families. And a church with a healthy trajectory also has gifted leaders who are able to shepherd the body by feeding and caring for them. And leaders who stay around for the long haul and won't seek another calling until the church is in a healthy position so that they can move on to their next assignment. Paul embodied this. Paul's motto wasn't to evangelize, baptize, and then vaporize. He evangelized, and he baptized, and he made sure before he moved on that the church had a healthy trajectory, that there were elders in place, that there was solid teaching. A healthy church doesn't see the Great Commission, in, and I, I, this, this is actually a, a phrase from one of the teachers at the conference that I thought was just brilliant and convicting. The healthy church doesn't see the Great Commission as two-dimensional where our only goal is to reach all peoples of all nations. It's not just two-dimensional. There's a third dimension, that we're to reach all peoples of all nations for all time, throughout all generations. We're to make disciples for all generations to the end of the age. And when our focus is on conversions, conversions at any cost, 
And where that cost of, of following Jesus is not counted or taught, there'll be many false conversions. And that's the problem in the church in America today. Yes, the church is declining. And the church is declining because we're coming out of a 50-year period of altar calls. And we're just saying, you're in, you're in, you're in. Baptize you. Now go live your life without discipleship. A goal I heard recently of a healthy church is true conversions and planting true churches. A healthy church has true conversions and plants true churches. So the goal for the church is to plant and establish healthy churches that are making healthy disciples. And this is not just a job of the pastors. It's a together job. It's a, it's a job for the body. It's not just the pastor's responsibility. It's a body responsibility. So I have a couple of questions here before we dive into the text. Are you a healthy church member at WCC? Are you a healthy church member? And even though we don't have a formal church membership, are you all in? Something that was just striking at this missionary conference as uh, it was primarily for people like David and Nicole that are ready to, getting ready to go to um, unreached language groups where the name of Jesus is maybe not known at all. And what they said was, don't go unless you can say that you're going for as long as it takes. Don't go unless you're willing to go for as long as it takes. Um, learn the language. Um, evangelize the community. See people come to Christ. Baptize them. Establish a local church. That's as long as it takes. It's not in and preach and leave. And it's the same thing. Are you willing to invest your life into the local church for the long haul? For as long as it takes. Being able to work through issues together. And we're going to talk about good reasons to leave, I think, as we go through this. Verse 1 and 9 and 10. I've got them grouped together because they're kind of parallel verses. Verse 1, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. The so-called super apostle said that Paul was humble when face to face with them but he was bold toward them in his writing when he was away. And then Paul restates the charges that these super apostles made against him in verses 9 through 10. He said, Paul writes, I do not want to appear to be frightening you, church in Corinth, with my letters, for they, the super apostles, say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Paul, Paul is humble when face to face. Um, and them saying that Paul is humble face to face is the same thing as saying that his bodily presence is weak. Humility in that culture was a sign of weakness. It wasn't a virtue. They said his speech is, was, is of no account. In other words, it's worthless. It's unimpressive. He probably had a lot of ums and ahs. He probably messed up his pronouns like I messed up my pronouns. Hopefully he didn't have pronouns back then and he didn't have to be judged by that. Um, it said that his, later, his letters were weighty and strong. And their, their charge of his weak presence points back to his painful visit where he was publicly humiliated. If you remember, um, after he wrote 1 Corinthians, the, the letter to 1 Corinthians, um, he sent Timothy down there to check on them. And Timothy reported back that there was apostasy in the church. And so Paul immediately jetted down to Corinth, and he had what he encountered what he called the painful visit. 
because he was humiliated. Um, they basically threw him out, and he, he left um, because he did not want to fight. And when he got back to Ephesus, he wrote to the church what, what's called a severe letter instead of going back. He wrote a severe letter. And so the super apostles used this, his, his painful visit and his severe letter as a weapon to turn the church against Paul, saying he's an ordinary man of this world. The power of God does not rest on him. He has no special gifts. He is a coward when he's in person, and he carries a big stick in his writing. And with that backdrop, Paul starts his rebuke in the most surprising manner at the beginning of verse 1. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I don't think I'd start the letter that way. I think I'd say, like, get ready. But he, he or I command you, or you can't talk to me that way. You, you can't um, gossip or slander me that way. What he does is he, he entreats them or appeals to them. He doesn't command them, and he doesn't appeal by his own credentials. He appeals to them by the meekness and gentleness of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the one who called himself gentle and humble at heart in Matthew 11. So by identifying himself with Jesus, Paul demolishes the accusation that his own meekness and gentleness are signs of weakness or a lack of power and authority. You see, Paul's aim isn't to destroy or to, or to punish, ultimately, but to build up and restore. And he does this by appealing to the meekness and gentleness of Jesus, who came not to destroy, but to bring life. Paul is gentle and meek and speaks the truth boldly, but always speaks it in love. However, he will not tolerate the, what, uh, sin in the camp that's leading the church away from the true gospel. In the verses 2 and 11, he says, he says I'm coming. He says, like Papa, I can only stand so much, and I can't stand no more. He says, I beg you that when I am present, I'm coming. I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Verse 11, let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. We're consistent. Paul begs them to repent and turn back to the gospel that he preached and that they once believed. And if they don't, he will confidently and boldly correct all their maligning him. And, and, the, and, the, and, the, uh, and their ill intent against the gospel. I recently heard somebody say that if a church leader is not willing to correct sin, he shouldn't be a church leader. Paul is preparing to wage war on them, to take offensive, because the enemy is taking ground, and the church is not the enemy, but the enemy is taking ground that is not his to take in the church that Paul loves. And like the song goes, you don't tug on Superman's cape, you don't spit into the wind, you don't pull the mask off the old, old ranger, and you don't mess around with Paul's gospel. You don't mess around with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's paternal instincts for the people he loves in the church that he founded are kicking in. And he's not going to sit idle while they're being held captive to bad theology that is permitting licentious living. And bad doctrine, bad theology leads either to legalistic living or licentious living. And I believe what's going on in Corinth, and it's the same thing that's going on in America today, is licentious living. It's a shallow gospel. It's a gospel that says, believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, end of story. 
It doesn't count the cost. It's not a gospel where there's a cost. These are professing Christians who are ignoring the first and second commandment. They, they praise God. They profess God with their lips, but not with their lives. They don't embody uh, to loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and the loving of their neighbor as themselves. They don't understand the cost of grace and the call of grace to live spirit-empowered lives in obedience to all that Jesus commanded. Verses 3 and 4. Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, he's not saying though we walk in sin. He's saying that we, the word human, we walk in the frailness and, and we're decaying, we're, we're human. For though we walk in flesh, we're human, we're not waging war according to the flesh. We're not waging war according to human standards or human motives. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh or not of this world, but have divine power, God's power, to destroy strongholds. Paul says, I can't destroy, I, I can't make you repent. I can't change anything in your life. I can't change anything in your culture, anything in your church. But I have weapons of divine power that can. And these strongholds that he wants to destroy are a result of human reasoning. Rather than reasoning from the Bible. And one of Satan's primary schemes, tactics, is to tempt Christians to try and make sense of the world through a human lens rather than the lens of the Word of God. Human reason uh, propels us, uh, motivates us, wrongly encourages us to try and change the world from the top down. Human reasoning says that we can change our culture, we can change the trajectory by changing institutions. By changing leaders rather than preaching the gospel and living out the great uh, first and second commandments. Human reasoning dupes us into thinking we can change the world through uh, human leaders and institutions. Human warfare, if you will. Additionally, the, the end of human reasoning is idolatry. Human reasoning uh, puts us in a place where we are loving God's gifts more than we're loving the giver of all of God's good gifts. Paul says we're coming. We're coming with divine weapons to destroy strongholds in the church. We're going to storm the fortress of lies and deceptions, destroy arguments set up against the knowledge of God, and we're going to free the captives. In Paul in chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, um, he describes how he first came to Corinth to evangelize. And it's the same way he's coming back to Corinth to call for repentance. Listen to his words from 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And, when I, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided, not to know, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the way to salvation. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's also the way to repentance for the believer. We don't wage war against those stuck in darkness with our plausible words, with our intellect and our rhetoric. We preach Christ and Him crucified. This is the only message that can set the captives free. It was not Paul. It was not his intellect. It was not his convincing words that brought many to faith. It was the gospel message brought to bear upon the hearts 
of people that God was drawing by the power of God. So Paul wages war on unrepentant hearts by the power of God. And I looked at my interlinear Bible because I wanted to know what's the, like, what's the root of power. What's the, what's the root of the Greek word? It's, it's, it's donatos. And I see it over and over again. As you know how it is? It's God is able. That when you look in the New Testament, God's power is that he is able. I'm, I'm not able. You're not able. You're not able to change anybody. You can't change your child's heart. You can't change your neighbor's heart. But God is able. God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we ask or we can even imagine. God is more than able to change the hardest heart into a heart of flesh. Yes, we need to engage in the battle. But remembering that the battle belongs to the Lord and that it's His power alone that can, can destroy strongholds. Paul intends to storm the gates of hell where the enemy is wrecking havoc on Christ's church and to recapture them by the love of Christ and to bring them by God's grace and back into the triumphal procession that Jesus is leading and to joyfully live in submission to all that Jesus is calling them to do and to go wherever Jesus is calling them to go. Verses 5 and 6, he says, We destroy arguments and, lofty, and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your, disobedience, when your obedience is complete. Um, this passage, um, I have used wrong. I've applied it, um, um, the context wrong uh, ever since I was a Christian, quite frankly. Uh, maybe up until the last week. There is a secondary application for my life and your life as individual sinners <laughs> saved by grace. But this, but this is Paul. Uh, it's, it's what he, he's going to accomplish by God's grace and power in warfare in other people's lives. So when, when um, the word translated thought, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, thought is rendered elsewhere as mind or minds. That, that um, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we're going to take every mind captive to the obedience of Christ. The idea is that Christ does not simply help people think holy thoughts, is that he takes over and transforms our minds so that our default thinking is of the things of God, his character, his promises, his grace, his holiness. And what's at stake here for Paul, what's at stake for the church, what's at stake for God's glory is the obedience of the church. In the battle mind is the mind and the enemy is Satan who attacks God's people with lies and schemes and temptations. And we're easy bait for him when we're not engaged in a church where our minds are being shaped by sound teaching and we're known in a community. You see, when, we're, when our minds are not being shaped by sound teaching and we're all alone, and we can, be, we can be part of a church and be all alone. Who knows you? Who knows you? Who knows your sin that you're entangled with? Who knows the areas of temptation? Who knows your joys and fears and dreams that can come alongside you? In chapter 11, verse 3, next week we're going to talk about this, but a little spoiler alert. Paul tells us that Satan deceives believers in the same way he deceived Eve. And leads us away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He's an expert at this. He's first team at this. 
He's an expert in deceiving well-meaning Christians. Well-meaning Christians, like us. He's an expert in deceiving well-meaning Christians to be sincerely devoted to worthless debates and endeavors that lead us away from a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. What are you sincerely and purely devoted to this morning that is not Jesus Christ? You might say your spouse. That's good. Your kiddos. That's good. But what are the things out there that make you angry and discontent that you're sincerely devoted to changing? Our devotion is to Jesus Christ. And it's only by His power through the proclamation of the gospel, that things that bug us, that make us angry, can be changed. So Paul aims to destroy all that is raised up against the knowledge of God in the church. And in doing so, his goal is not to destroy the people, but to build them up. He wants the best for God's people. And the best for God's people is when we come underneath the lordship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we come underneath it. When we, when we um, live out the first and second commandments. The word of God, illuminated by the spirit of God, destroys arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. This is God's work, but it's accomplished in the context of the local church. And once Paul goes to Corinth and, and destroys their arguments, tears down the walls, destroys the strongholds, once they become obedient and their minds and hearts are once again captured by the love of Christ, he says the disobedient need to be punished. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And I think what Paul is talking about here is church discipline. I hate it but it's the design of the local church that God has gathered a people for himself at a great cost. And when there is unrepentant sin in the church with no desire to turn from it, Paul says that the disobedience needs to be punished so that they might repent and be restored. And one of my favorite sections in all of Scripture is Galatians 6. I think I've got it saved. And here's really what church discipline looks like at the very beginning stages. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. What's at stake is God's glory and the purity of the church. Verse 7, Paul tries to wake up the deceived minority with a dose of reality. He says, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him, re let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so are we. What Paul is talking about is, is um, hey, look, look at us. We're Christians, just like they're Christians. No, he's saying, he says, look before your eyes. We are true ambassadors. We have God's authority. Look at, look at uh, what we've done by God's grace. We've come into your community. We've preached the gospel of Jesus Christ that you've believed. We've left you with elders. Look at our track record. Recalculate and add up the evidence. You're being deceived. We are true apostles. Verse 8, for even if I boast a little too much in our authority, 
which the Lord gave for building you up and not destroying you, I will not be ashamed. Paul says, I, the Lord gave me my authority, and I've used it well by God's grace to build you up, not to destroy you and tear you down. My ministry is one of salvation, not destruction. Paul states that he's not ashamed to boast in God's given authority to build up the church and not destroy it. And then we go to verse 12. Paul's boasting, once again, wasn't in his superiority over his detractors. He says this in verse 12. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they were without understanding. The false apostles, like many pastors and churches today, are caught up in the comparison game. They measure their success and failure in relation to other churches' success and failure. They look at how many Instagram followers they have, church attendance, giving, baptisms, how many graduates from PLI. And most of these, maybe not the Instagram one, are worthy of celebration as long as God gets the glory, the praise, and the honor. But they're not necessarily indicators of success. I talked to a pastor last week in a small town in Nebraska. That you know, town has 1,100 people. Like he goes to conferences and he hears these churches of hundreds of people getting baptized and thousands of people in the church, more than he has in his town. And if he starts comparing himself to other churches, he's going to get super discouraged. Paul is saying, even though we boast in the authority God gave us for building you up, we will not measure our success or failure in comparison to others. And those who do are without understanding. They're fools. So Paul's ultimate goal is not numbers. It's not the number of converts. It's not the number of baptisms. It's not attendance. It's not churches planted. His goal is a healthy church in the town that he evangelized, where people are built up to maturity in Christ and living in submission in the first and second commandment. Do we boast? Yes, we will boast in what only God is doing and what only God can do in and through us. Verses 13 and 14, but we will not boast beyond our limits. Our aim is not to boast in God using us beyond how he's actually used us. But we'll boast only with regard to the area of, God, of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. We're not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we are the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. Paul's not exaggerating. I have a tendency to exaggerate. I've noticed that about myself. Like when I'm uh, talking to other people, it's not a big exaggeration, by the way. It's an exaggeration. Somebody goes, what's your average attendance? You know? And I do track it, by the way, which I really feel like I need to stop tracking attendance. Like it does, like, why do that? Somebody asks me, like, what's your attendance? And I'll, I'll use it, like, I'll give them, like, a number, like, five higher. Not 50 higher, but, like, five higher. I go, like, why did I do that? And then I'll justify it. I go, well, I think there's five women pregnant in this body. Like, you know, there's, like, there's, they come, and, like, there's life in there, and that's okay, isn't it? But, but Paul does not exaggerate um, in the places that God has used him. He and his team were the first ones to reach the Corinthians with the gospel of Jesus Christ. His, ambi his ambition and his calling was to preach the gospel where Christ was not yet known, and then to establish a healthy church, and then to move on. Listen to the way he describes his ministry. Romans chapter, what is it? Chapter 15. For I will not venture to speak of anything. I won't boast in any of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. I love the way he says that. First of all, he gives all the glory to God. 
He didn't say he brought the Gentiles to faith. He brought them to obedience because faith. Genuine conversion always leads to increasing obedience. Remember what we talk about? It's not about perfection, but it's about direction. It's the direction of, of obedience in the believer's life. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition, my calling, to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. And by the way, that's not a calling for everybody. It's his unique calling. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. That's his calling. But he's not a cold-hearted evangelist that just wants to um, see people come to Christ and then he hits his um, sending agency's app and he reports week by week to converts and calls it good and moves on. He cares about the church. He cares about the health of the church. He can't move on to the next assignment in good conscience until there is a trajectory for a healthy church in Corinth. He's writing this from Ephesus. He's getting ready to move on to Macedonia. He wants to go back down into Corinth and pick up the collection and go to Jerusalem. But he's, he feels paralyzed. He can't leave until he feels like the church is on a healthy tra- trajectory, that the faith is being, their faith is being increased. So he says that in verses 15 and 16. We do not boast beyond our limit in the labor, labor of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases or matures, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. If their faith would increase and mature, he would feel released to engage in his next assignment in the next city to preach the gospel in places where no man has shared it before. He left key leaders behind to ensure that churches he planted would stay healthy. He urged Timothy to stay behind in Ephesus when he went on to Macedonia. He encouraged Titus to stay in Crete to appoint elders in every town. And Paul is a great example for missionaries, church planters, and pastors today. As I already said, that the, that the, that the, the model in the church today is you stay for a few years so until you can get like a better gig. You move on. And, and not that it's always wrong for a pastor or a missionary or church planter to move on, but are they moving on with it, leaving a church healthy? And I can tell you this, um, unless I get ran out of this place, like when I leave, um, by God's grace, there'll be somebody taking my place. I'm not going to leave this place. You've got great elders here. But whatever role, whatever my unique function is here, that I'm not going to leave until that role is filled. And, that's, and, I, and I believe that's a, that's a calling. That's an example of Paul. That's an example of Jesus. It's one of the primary reasons he invested in 12 before he died and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father. So that the church could be established. So there could be sound doctrine and sound teaching. Paul's work wasn't over when there were, when there were simply converts. He couldn't rest until there was a true and healthy church. And can I say this is a reminder. This is for all of us as members. I'm a member of this church as well. We don't have membership, but I'm a member here. Is stay for the long haul. Stay uh, in the local church. This church 
or another local church for the long haul. In the same way that they encourage missionaries, don't, don't go overseas um, for, for any period. Go, go for as long as it takes. Stay at the church. Leave the church when there's, um, when there's heresy, when there's unsound doctrine. Maybe leave the church when, um, when there's no use for your God-given gifts here, which I can't imagine. And you can use those gifts somewhere else. But don't leave the church when there's people that you need to be reconciled with, that you're running from somebody. Don't leave the church because the lead pastor messes up his pronouns. Don't leave a church because of their mask mandate or the way that they handled the pandemic. People left churches all over northern Colorado for reasons in that, that I don't think are primary. There's good reasons to leave the church. Unsound doctrine. Another, another good reason to leave a church is that you're going to a church where you, where you pass two or three other good churches on the way to getting there. And many of you have, have, have come to this church because you were at a church in Loveland or Greeley or Fort Collins or Wellington and you live in this community. I think it's a great reason to, to find a new church. So those of you that have been here for a while, thank you. Thank you for sticking through thick and thin. Thank you for enduring our mistakes during the pandemic. We learn from them. We'll be ready for the next one. Thank you for those of you that have had issues and have worked, stayed to work through it with other believers. And for those of you that are checking us out, Welcome. We're glad you're here. This is an awesome church. It's a great church. What makes it a great church is because we have a great God and we've got a great body who, is, who are using their gifts to, to edify the body, to bring God glory, to reach the surrounding community, to re reach the nations. But I want to encourage you that if, you are, um, that, that if you've got um, business um, at another church, if you've left a church and, and there's, um, make sure you leave well. Make sure you leave well. And if this is the place you feel like God's leading you, sooner rather than later, pull up the, pull up the hood. You can hear some things purring that are working well, and you're going to hear some knocking sounds. I'm usually a knocking sound. And I want you to like, like understand this, church. Plug into biblical convictions. Um, you missed it this time, you get it next time, where you, you hear some of the unique convictions and doctrines that we stand on. Not unique. It's all in God's Word. It's some of the distinctives. And then make a, a quick decision to, 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 to deep dive. Get involved in a community group where you can be known and where you can know others. Um, serve. God doesn't need your service, but He's given you gifts. And you're not going to experience maximum joy in Christ until you step into that. That's a weird way to end a message and jump into communion. But we're his body. Verses 17 and 18, Paul says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. 
Paul summarizes our aim of boasting. Anything that good, from, good, good that comes from our lives, anything good that comes from our churches, we must and we will boast in the Lord. Staying in the mission field or staying in a church for a long haul takes work. And we stay for the long haul to work towards the health of the church that can only be accomplished by the power of God. For He is able. So we stay and we serve and we're, we become known and we boast in all of it of our good God who holds it all together. Amen? So we get to celebrate communion together. Has anybody noticed that we haven't done this in a while? And please forgive us. Please forgive me as pastors. Like, it's had a bit of a pandemic hangover and like just gotten different rhythms. And um, our rhythm pre-pandemic was doing communion, celebrating communion once a month. And um, we're actually uh, getting ready to read a book as pastors and thinking and praying about should we do communion once a week. And so if you just pray for us in that, but we will do it at a minimum once a month. Um, we did not celebrate, if you noticed, um, uh, communion at all when we were doing video church. Because communion is a communal response to what God has do, done in gathering a people for himself. It's not an individual. It's, it's communion. We're one loaf. We're one body celebrating the broken body of Jesus. And I'm going to read um, just a paragraph and a half from Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm going to encourage you just to, um, just to ponder these words, ponder the sermon, ask God what he has for you, and then we will, um, we will engage in the elements together. If you, don't, if, you have not, if you don't have this snack pack, there's one in the table out there. Ephesians chapter 2. And you, Christian, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So would you take just a couple of minutes and just let the Spirit of God do business with you, and then we'll celebrate and participate together.